Welcome to the SciDef Cybersecurity Podcast. I'm your host, Raymond Evans, and this is my co-host, Michael Fairweather. We're here to provide you with the cybersecurity news that matters to help you in the cyber realm. We are proud members of the Pod Bros Podcast Network. Check them out at podbros.com. Hey, hey, everyone. Welcome to episode 15. I'm back with Michael again, and this week we have a special guest from Cyberary. I'm Ryan. Hello. A little bit about uh, what we do here. So for those of you that don't know Cyberary, and that's not uncommon at this point because we are only about seven months old. We launched January 13th. We are on a crazy initiative from what many people believe is a crazy initiative to free cybersecurity training. So we have what's generally referred to as a massive open all platform or provider. MOOC is what they call it in the industry. Um, and we provide cybersecurity training classes for free, starting from entry level all the way up to relatively advanced and, and some kind of leadership certification classes and non-certification classes. So that's what we're doing. Nice. We at SciDef are always promoting and advocating education for users. Every week we always find news stories and in those news stories it's usually user error that causes the problems. Always. Oh, yeah. I mean, not, not always, but often. <laughs> For sure. This week, I have critical Internet of Things security flaw leaves connected home devices vulnerable. And there's another Android vulnerability discovered, and this time it affects 55% of the users. What do you have for us, Michael? Yeah, this week we're going to talk about hackers showing off a long-distance Wi-Fi radio proxy at DEF CON. And Dropbox isn't as secure as you think. It isn't? Nope. Shocking. Mm, surprising. <laughs> I wonder if this story has anything to do with that man in the cloud thing we were talking about last week. I don't know. We'll find out. We're going to start off this week with hackers show off long-distance Wi-Fi radio proxy at DEF CON. Tell us about that, Michael. Yeah, so it was really cool. At DEF CON, Robert Graham and David Manor actually presented something called Ham Sandwich, or Ham Sandwich, rather. It is a device that can actually proxy data over the 900 megahertz radio band from up to 20 miles away and up to 56 kilobytes per second, which is the top speed of dial-up modems from the late 90s. Yeah, Ham Sandwich is actually very similar to the device that was created by Ben Caldell, which back on July 14th, Wired had actually covered a story about Proxy Ham being canceled at DEF CON. It was originally supposed to be shown at DEF CON, but for some reason, the talk just disappeared. Many people had a lot of speculations about it. Some were that you know the NSA was kind of strong-arming Ben out of doing it, but others have better assumptions about it, and one of those assumptions is that Ben's device was actually running higher than the 900 megahertz, which is the, the top allowance for the transmission, and they, they believe that the FCC had seen this activity and given Ben a cease and desist. Right, so um, Ham Sandwich actually takes a different, slightly different approach than uh, Proxy Ham did. It actually uses a weaker signal, uh, but spreads it out uh, using software-defined radios, and the signal is kept behind the noise floor. Um, so basically, it's it's running under background noise. That's the same noise you hear when you turn on the radio. Yeah, so it's it's running behind that, so you're not actually going to hear it. Running it like this actually limits the device's connection speed, but like I said, it increases the range. You can still track the signal with specialized equipment, 
but most likely nobody's actually looking at it, so it's still pretty cool. The idea behind that is actually very reminiscent of pirate radios over in Europe. Pirate radios in Europe will set up IR transmitters across various buildings. So the, the pirate radio station can be in one building 10 miles away, and the signal is being sent through these IR transmitters that are mount it in windows and various buildings or on top of the buildings and the the pirate radios are able to still transmit their their radio signals but if anybody's tracking them they got to go to all these different buildings to try to figure out um, where it's coming from and that's that's what ham sandwich does as well the person who is listening to the device has to have a directional radio antenna actually point it in the direction of it to be able to listen to it so if they know where it is but nobody else really knows where it is they're able to do things from long distances and, you know, hide their activity. For example, if uh, somebody had a Raspberry Pi set up as a Pwn Pi in a coffee shop or something and, you know, man in the middling all of the credit card transactions, the person who's stealing all the data can just be sitting on a rooftop somewhere half a mile away and just be sucking up all the data. Uh, by doing that, you're able to have it look like you're in one area when really you're you know, really far away. Do you have any opinions about this and uh, and the user's security while they're, you know, out at these Wi-Fi hotspots and whatnot? Well, I mean, it's it brings up a whole, or opens up a whole other can of worms, really. You know, you look at this and it's like, look at how much security is actually beyond our control. Uh, just from an end user perspective, think about the person in that coffee shop actually making that purchase. You know, what are, what are some best practices that, that that person can do? Even somebody who's, let's say, you know, very well trained, I mean, you're, you're still vulnerable to the setup of the environment that you're in. That's, that's pretty scary. So we've got a long way to evolve, guys. Long way to evolve. <laughs> it's actually even scarier that this is, it's not technically legal to steal the data, but they are able to steal the data in a legal manner. You know, using that that background noise, that's not something that the FCC is going to be monitoring for. So they're right. doing it in a way that is completely legal, which is kind of ironic, doing something illegal in, in a legal way. Now, they are transmitting. I thought this was kind of cool, that they're actually transmitting it unencrypted. If they were sending it encrypted over that 900 band, then the FCC would absolutely be on them for that. That was another problem with the proxy ham. They were transmitting everything with the proxy ham over the 900 megahertz band, all encrypted, which is a, a big no-no. Yeah, that's like encrypting a ham radio. Ben Caldy, however, had told Wired in an interview last month that the FCC had nothing to do with it. At the time, Rhino Security also said that it was immediately halting all of its development of ProxyHam and that any more of the devices wouldn't be released and that all of the existing devices were disposed of. So I would like to see the actual report of this and see what had actually happened, you know, who strong-armed him and whatnot, because for somebody that had so much following and backing and support and funding, it's it's kind of crazy that this would just up and disappear like that. Yeah. How much does this bring into, uh, into light? Like, I know that there are some other startups out there and a few other companies that have matured a decent amount over the last year that are really doing a lot uh, a lot of great work in dark web monitoring. So at what point is, let's say, like an end user or just, I mean, a, a civilian, whatever, a, a normal person out there going to have to find themselves getting a subscription to some sort of dark web monitoring companies uh, in order to get immediate alerts prior to, like, any sort of pie being being sold or, or pushed around at too much of a... Oh, uh, users... <laughs> 
Uh, you actually bring up uh, something funny. We had talked about this a, a couple weeks ago. I was at a convention called ShowMeCon, and the speaker at the convention who was talking about dark web was actually in a room full of people prior to the ShowMeCon and asked all everybody to pull out their credit card numbers, and he had a massive database from the deep web. And none of the people had seen any kind of traffic on their credit cards because there are so many credit cards out there on the deep web that if you get hit, and your credit card is being used, then you're kind of the winner of the unlucky lottery. But he asked, he asked them all to pull out their credit cards, and people read off their credit card numbers, and he just went through the database and was like, yep, yours, 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 yours. Every, every single person in the room was, was hit. So really, deep web monitoring should already be happening. Your information is out there. Everybody's information is out there. It's just a matter of whether or not you're the winner of the unlucky lottery yet. So should monitoring then for, for the user exist on, you know, within the deep web, dark web, or or should it be more at the uh, surface level or the level that really affects the uh, the user, like the companies like LifeLock and things like that? I mean, where's the, the efficacy for the actual end user, in your opinion? There should be the startups out there that look into the deep web, go to places where people are too scared to go, because a lot of large companies might be too afraid to go into those areas. If all of a sudden they have this massive Tor network coming out of their servers, there might be the, the fear or the stigmatism, you know, that they might be pinged for something and might be starting to get monitored by, you know, government agencies and whatnot. So smaller companies might be better at it because they don't have those pressures they that the larger probably, companies have. I feel like they could kind of fly under the radar while building up the company, and then once they're to a point where it might be, you know, a, a larger company in that aspect, they've already set the standard for what they're doing. You know, hey, this is the company to go to for whatever, to monitor that information out there for me. I almost feel like they have more free reign to be able to do that. Yeah, the, the larger companies, with their contracts with ISPs and whatnot, they get tied up into a lot of legal loopholes of where they are allowed to go, what, where they're not allowed to go. I know there are there are a couple of companies. I think a new one called Terbium Labs. I believe they're in the Baltimore area here too. But they're they're working on. But it's all enterprise level at this point, just like you said. I mean, it's it's the larger corporations that are paying these guys to do this stuff. But at what point is it, is there going to need to be almost like a Google for you know for the dark web that the individuals can access? You know what I mean? And then, it, I mean, it's a whole, I know it's a tangent uh, off the topic, but I mean, it's it's not a matter of, just like you said, all those credit cards were taken. It's not a matter of uh, of if, it's just a matter of it's already out there and, and when is it going to affect you. So it's like, when do, when do when does an individual need to then look at something to put into place like a cyber kill chain type thing, right? Where it's already, ha we know it's happening, right? So he, these are the layers that the individual needs to kind of put into place uh, to protect their home, protect their family protect their bank accounts and so on, you know, credit, that kind of thing. Can of worms. <laughs> <laughs> There's a huge can of worms that needs to be addressed now in the in the cybersecurity world, you know. Deep Web's only growing. Yeah. You know, it, it used to be all of the Internet back before the advent of Google, really. And then it went, went deep, dark, silent. Uh, but now with the Tor browser and whatnot, it's, it's opening up to a, a huge swath of, the population it doesn't help that it's also in the media every other week. So really, the time is now. That that, that discussion needs to be happening um, at big conventions like ShowMeCon, DefCon, Black Hat, all that kind of stuff. People need to start making those connections and start organizing something. You know, get a, an initiative going for that. 
Right. I agree. Yeah. Because without the the handful of passionate few trying to fight for the user, there's only lots of dark days ahead. So this this ham sandwich, you know, situation is is really just. I mean, it's tip of the iceberg stuff. I mean, you know, you heard about that one. Um, security research team, I believe, out of University of Texas or something like that, that uh, that flew drones over the city of Austin, or they flew like one or two drones over the city of Austin, and they did so in a very small radius. And in that small radius, they found, um, I can't remember the name of the, of the vulnerability, I don't know if you guys do, it starts with a Z, I believe. Um, Zigbee? Yeah, the Zigbee, yeah. Did you guys talk about that recently? Uh, no, we actually have a Zigbee coming up. Oh, okay. Oh. There you go. <laughs> There's an, an excellent segue. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, and, and uh, you know, what was it, like 1,600 vulnerabilities in, like, this really small radius? Yeah, yeah, it was ridiculous, all thanks to Internet of Thing devices. Right. Speaking of Internet of Thing devices and Zigbee... <laughs> but um, Thank you for that segue. That was beautiful. <laughs> it was. Uh, a critical Internet of Things security flaw leaves connected home devices vulnerable. A number of critical vulnerabilities ripe for exploit have been discovered in Zigbee, which is a popular standard used by Internet of Thing devices, and it's used to interconnect multiple devices on the same network. So sometimes your light switch might have to communicate with the same hub that is communicating with the fridge. So they need to have a similar language, and that's where Zigbee comes in. Unfortunately, <laughs> having the similar language has created some security holes, and not only is it the similar language, but it's also, if Paul Jordan is listening, he will cringe at this, uh, a little bit on the developer side too. Because of the low per unit cost, interoperability and compatibility requirements, as well as the application of legacy security concepts, there is a persistence of known security risks in these devices. One of the things that came from this this article that I was talking about it was uh, the Vienna-based Cognosec, uh, they actually found that it's possible to compromise uh, the Zigbee networks and take over every single IoT device connected to the hub using the protocol. So the security of Zigbee is highly reliant on the secrecy of the, the keys. It is dependent on the initialization and transportation of the encrypted keys to, to do everything. So if, a, if an attacker is sniffing the device when it's pairing initially with the hub, they're able to grab that encryption key and be able to sit and perform a man-in-the-middle attack for the rest of the time because they're able to use that encryption key to make themselves look like a device on the network that is trusted. That doesn't sound like a security flaw at all. (laughs) The shortfalls and limitations of Zigbee have been created by the manufacturers themselves. It's because these manufacturers are trying to pump out these devices quickly and at low cost. You know, everybody wants their, their homes connected now. They want their lights to be able to turn on via Wi-Fi. They want their fridge to tell them when they're out of milk. They want their USB toasters to make fresh toast for them in the morning. So I think you're exactly right, Ray. I think the problem kind of starts at the, at the business's level. I mean, they, these guys are sitting around, you know, these coders are sitting around just like required to ship product under deadlines, you know, and, and uh, I mean, half of them are untrained in security at all. They're coming off of these computer science degree programs that are obviously, I mean, good programs in a lot of ways, and they're probably great co- coders, but they overlook security to get function, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, I know that for me, going through my my coding classes when working on my degree, security was not involved at all in those. 
you weren't looking at hey how do I also how do I build this and also make this secure you were looking at the fact of how do I pump out this product how do I do whatever they're looking for it's not only that but it's also in the way we educate our programmers simplest program that everybody writes the very first time that they code is what hello world exactly and are you aware that in the hello world code there's actually a format string vulnerability <laughs> so the simplest the first step is vulnerability exactly but you didn't know that because they don't teach security when they're teaching people how to program and develop and that's something that needs to be taught in the lessons that's something that needs to be integrated in learning how to develop is security as well because that's the, that's the biggest problem that we're finding in the cybersecurity world is that these developers are pumping out code and they don't have security in mind because they're not being taught security so some of the attacks I mean that are like just super common you know I mean they should probably be brought into the curriculum um, or shameless plug, they should go to Cyberay and learn about these things. <laughs> well, that's <laughs> but, not a shameless um, plug because you guys have fantastic videos. Yeah. Well, thank you, thank you. But I mean, you know, shouldn't every coder need to know? Shouldn't it be in all curriculum everywhere? SQL injection, uh, cross-site scripting attacks, man in the middle. I mean, shouldn't that be required stuff? It should be. It, it absolutely yeah. should be. It should be at the the forefront of the basics of. Hey, this is we're going to teach you how to do this. We're also going to teach you how this can be used you know, against you. Yeah, used against you. You know, when you create a product, when you create something, you want to say, "Hey, that's mine. I did that." And somebody go, "Oh yeah, it's just, you know, the simplest thing, format string. Oh, I I've already broke it." But not only is this on the developers, but this is also on the end user as well. People are integrating these internet connected devices into their house more and more and more. However, they don't know the basics of home security. I will toss on my tablet or my cell phone, and I'll go around war driving, just for the heck of it, to kind of get an audit of the people around me. I'll drive a mile down the road and take a turn and drive a mile back, and I will still find WEP, unsecured WEP, on home users' routers. And it, it amazes me, but you know, it comes down to educating the users as well. Users have to know what they're looking at on their network, what a, what a baseline is, what normal traffic and abnormal traffic look like. The user looks at Wireshark, they're, they're not going to have any idea what they're looking at. You know, you pop up Wireshark and they see their device is talking, they're just going to think everything is copacetic. But if they identify that, you know, their fridge has an active SSH to an IP address out in Russia, they should identify that as something a little strange. And not a lot of users know how to set up home firewall rules either, and that's something else that home users need to be able to do. You know, they need to be able to hop on their firewall and deny all port 22 activity entering or exiting their network. Because let's face it, the home user necessarily doesn't need to do SSH. Yeah. Home, home user, basic home user doesn't need an FTP server running either. Yeah, and if you do, you're going to know how to set, up, set that up. Exactly. Or you should know how right. to set that up. Right. Yeah, I think, uh, Ray, be careful. You're going to get me all fired up here. Um, but I mean, this is like this is like passion point for me, right? So this is like this is what drove what we're doing. This is this is like the reason behind it. Organizations alone aren't equipped for modern cyber threats and the emerging cyber threats, much less the people at home. I mean, look at how many times we've heard of the uh, the parents who have been harassed and the uh, babies who have been harassed through baby monitors, right? 
I mean, all the vulnerable uh, uh, IP cameras in homes, and I mean, all these kinds of things. They're just continually emerging, just like what we talked about in the previous uh, article. So, I mean, it's not fair. It, it isn't fair. It, it's a it's a completely one-sided environment right now that uh, people just have absolutely no defense against. You know, you learn how to do pretty much anything else in your life. You know, you learn how to live as an adult in this world through your parents and your upbringing in the school systems and so on. But um, but cybersecurity is driving this planet right now, and it's and it's a one-sided battle. So we're we're completely ill-equipped. And so, you know, I mean, I think, and again, just to, to throw it in there, but you know, we're going to work on it. We're working on a class right now that's actually going to be able to educate individuals. We're calling it cybersecurity for home and family because we're all forced. We have absolutely no no ability to say no to internet-enabled devices in the in the palm of our hand or in our home anymore. We, we're forced to use these kinds of kinds of things. So, um, so it's just not fair that we, you know, the average person doesn't know how to defend themselves. So too many problems out there, and, and, uh, and I guess that's why we're, again, that's my passion point. So sorry to rant, but that's... Uh, it's all good. That's why we brought you on. We teach our kids to look both ways before crossing the road. Right. With this age of interconnectivity, we need to teach our children basic security. Yeah. Because improperly set up basic home security, in some cases, can be just as dangerous as not looking before crossing the road. You know, yeah. both of them could potentially ruin the rest of your life. It's a perfect example. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, we know to teach our children to look both ways, right? I mean, I'm a, I'm a parent. You guys are, are parents. You know you hold somebody's hand crossing the street. We know that because experience has told us that there's a very good chance that you're going to get run over if, uh, if you just dart out in the middle of a busy street. But the same is happening on the web right now and, and uh, with our internet-enabled devices. And we don't know that you may get hit by an attack. <laughs> Not a car, but an attack. So it's, it's starting to come out. I mean, what, what do you guys think about it? You know, a lot of these, these news stories come out, and they just kind of, they're, they're buzzed, but they're buzzed among, amongst the cybersecurity community, right? I mean, are they really buzzed amongst, you know, civilians and innocent people out there? The biggest problem I have with the buzz stories in the mainstream media is that the vulnerabilities with the catchy and sexy names are the vulnerabilities that get the buzz. We're, we're really good, like we said to Jason last week, we're really good at coming up with these hot names for our vulnerabilities. You know, Heartbleed. Made a logo for it and <laughs> made the name Heartbleed, and everybody thought that was really catchy. You can buy a T-shirt with Heartbleed on it now. <laughs> but something like CVE 2015-3825, which is an Android vulnerability that we're going to talk about later, isn't going to get the attention. Like, stage fright. Stage fright. Because it's, it's sexy. Stage fright, you know? Heartbleed. Shell shock. Right. But CVE 2015-382, it's not going to get its attention because it sounds too technical. Well, the, the average user is going to look at that and go, I, I don't understand what that means. And it's not going to affect me, right? Yeah. Maybe there needs to be a way for us to break the vulnerabilities down into a system that home users can understand. Categorize them like kind of planets or whatever. Like it goes into a database and it's got this number. And maybe the number can bring attention to the fact that there, are, there have been that many in that given year or something like that. Or even a criticality of it, you know. Okay. Like, like a DEF CON type system. Right. This is Android vulnerability number blah, blah, blah with a cyber con of four. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah, Some good. kind of ranking system that will catch people's attention. Yeah, I think that's a good idea, for sure. Because there are vulnerabilities out there. There are CVEs out there that have very, very, very low criticality levels and are e easily patched like that, you know. But then there are 
vulnerabilities out there with high severity criticality levels and users can't identify between the two. So we've got, you know, we've got that same kind of naming system for for like weather, right? So it's code orange heat index and, and those kind of things. And we've got that for uh, national security levels as well, right? I think that's a, a great suggestion. Why not? There probably should be something like that. I mean, you know, it's, it's a high alert environment. And, you know, I mean, shoot, you know, we're going to talk here about uh, about these, you know, mobile mobile exploits and mobile vulnerabilities. But, I mean, we're barely scratching the surface on those right now, right? Oh, um, yeah, we, mobile is a hotbed for malware. Oh, for sure. I mean, how few people have actually experienced it that are going to feel it over the next year or two, right? And one of the reasons why mobile malware is such a, a hotbed is because of jailbreaking their phones. You know, people yeah. want their, their free Angry Birds. They want their free apps. And it doesn't help mobile users when the mobile users are breaking their devices, essentially, right. and allowing for this malware to bypass all the security features that are in place. You know, jailbreaking your phone is not a good thing necessarily. And that jailbreaking is just letting malware run rampant because there's no identification of what is and isn't a malicious app anymore because on the main app stores, those apps are able to be vetted. But on these right. third-party app stores, you might as well just assume everything's malware. Right. Yeah, we talked about that a couple weeks ago, talking about the iOS, uh, Apple's, store and then Google Play was going in and actually starting to check the apps that were coming through but we talked about jailbreaking and how it's you know some you know there might be something useful about it but in the long run you're you're taking a serious risk in doing it but sometimes this risk doesn't necessarily come from the user sometimes the users assume that some kind of system is secure because it's from a big corporation or a big company that is well established and it turns out that it's not as secure as you think it is, such as Dropbox. Why don't you tell us about that, Michael? Dropbox is not as secure as you think. <sighs> Blew my mind. <laughs> so some some of the facts about Dropbox. They actually service over 100,000 businesses. Um, they have over 300 million users, and every 24 hours, 1 billion files are uploaded, while 97% of Fortune 500 companies utilize uh, some form of their service. That being said, it's not as safe as they thought. Back in 2011, starting off, there were actually uh, quite a few claims um, about security lapses with Dropbox, where users could actually access other accounts without using passwords. That's not good. Yeah, so you could get in without passwords. Um, and then in 2012... All of the Dropbox users were spammed. And then this is more of a uh, kind of side note kind of thing, but Condoleezza Rice was actually appointed to the company in uh, 2014. You know, someone who worked, according to this, a uh, very person who worked under administration that supported and encouraged NSA data collection strategies. And in 2014, as well, back in October, uh, there were rumors uh, circulating that there had been a data breach within Dropbox. Dropbox did come out and say, that you know it was overblown in the media, basically saying that you know it just wasn't true. Um, they did reassure the media that the clients, um, the email accounts listed for sale, were not associated with active Dropbox accounts. Is that status quo media response? <laughs> I think it is. Right. Just no. That's that's not us. Yeah. Oh, it wasn't that bad. It wasn't that bad. Seriously. Yeah. <laughs> well, at that point with the media, I have to, all you have to do is you know toss out like, oh, it was an error in our demodulated transducing units with the bypass referral systems. 
and the flux capacitor. I was just going to say that, Michael. <laughs> the flux capacitor. <laughs> you say enough technical stuff until their eyes glaze over. I was about to say the eyes glaze over and you're just you're done. So with the with the risk of all these companies getting hacked and with all of these potential vulnerabilities out there, there are some key things that you should do to protect yourself. Two-step verification. That's a, a huge thing that you need to implement. There are services out there that allow you to do that for free. Google has a service where you can get a one-time passcode and you will put input your username and password to your bank. Then you go into the app on your, your Android device and get that one-time password, put that in, boom, secured. Yeah. If somebody tries to access your account without that one-time password, they can't do it. So two-step verification is very, very important. We're, we're seeing it today, actually, a lot with um, credit card companies and bank companies rolling out the new pin and chip cards in America. Uh, it was actually kind of funny. I was at a store earlier, and I had a, an older individual in front of me yelling and complaining about her new chip card and about how it's pointless, and she doesn't understand why she now has to put her card in and add that one little area, you know, just stick it into a slot. You know, rather than swiping it, you know, stick it into a slot for the chip to be read. It was apparently too much of a hassle now for her. Swiping is so much fun, though. She, as a user, didn't understand why she had to do it. She didn't understand the, the concept behind two-factor authentication. You know, something you know, something you have. Two-factor authentication, users should, should really do it. Also, don't use the same password, ever, anywhere. If you're on Dropbox and you have a password set up, and you're using that password for every other service you have, and then Dropbox gets hacked and your password gets stolen, and the, the hacker knows all of your other accounts, you just gave him the key to the castle. Yeah, especially you know. with stuff where usernames are your email address. You know, you put in your email address and then a password, or, you know, at that point, oh, email address, I've got that. You don't even have to look for other usernames and stuff. Another really good tip, don't make a, a device recognized as an authorized device for connecting to a, an account. MAC addresses can be spoofed. It's very, very easy to spoof a MAC address. So if a service is using your unique MAC address to identify the device as a trusted device and the individual gets your username and password and you have something set up such as uh, email verification like Google has whenever you log in uh, via an unknown browser, that you'll never get that notification. You won't know that somebody's been on your account. So disable that. Do not allow devices to be recognized as a valid device. Yeah. So from the product side, from the companies that are rolling out the ability for the user to um, allow a device to be recognized, they do so because of engagement factors. You know what I mean? If you kind of cause too many barriers to entry for a user to get back into your platform, um, you're going to drive down your user engagement. So, I mean, that, that's pretty much why these companies do that because they know that their numbers go up and that people are going to be spending more time on their platforms and, and they're going to have less complaint and, and suggestions and things like that. So what, what are your thoughts there? I mean, people are going to do it. Companies are going to still continue to roll it out. What, what, where's the balance? You know what I mean? That needs to be... Eradicated. <laughs> yeah, it does. It really does. Users need to be taught the importance of not allowing that, just as they need to be taught the importance of why a website logs you out after a set determined amount of time. Yeah, I think once you've once you've educated the population and that stuff that kind of stuff becomes standard practice, they're not going to think of it as a you know an inconvenience or anything like that. It's this is what I'm doing to help protect myself. But when you look at it as strictly a convenience thing and it's never 
you know, the security risks involved with that are not talked about. Well, of course, you know, if somebody came through and was like, oh, I've got to log in every single time I go to this, well, that I'm just not going to use that product anymore. That that happens. But if you're teaching them and you're educating them and you're getting them to know the reasons why you're setting something up that way and you're being very open about that, I believe that as we continue to teach and continue to grow, that it, it won't it won't be that problem. The increase of convenience decreases the ability to be properly secure. Because next thing you know, they're going to have cookies that are unlimited time cookies. So where a user logs in once and never has to log in again. And guess what? Cross-site script attacks are going to happen, and the, the person's cookies are going to be stolen. And then the attackers will get free reign to every single account that they hit with their cross-site script. Because so, the convenience decreased the security. Yeah. So I guess the point here that I'll take away from this is to make sure that we talk about disabling recognition of a device in the you know cybersecurity for home and family course. Yeah. I mean, I guess that's yeah. <laughs> that's 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 where it could start, right? I mean, absolutely. E educating is where it starts. Because um, I'm not going to go out and you know if I didn't understand this stuff, I would turn on recognize my device and and go from there, because it's convenient. You know. That's that's what we go, that's what we live for these days in, in the states is convenience. It was inconvenient at first, but it's become such a habit that oh, I need to go and do this. It's not an inconvenience anymore. You know, that's just what it is. That's the process to check. You know, my bank. That's the you know my email. Whatever it is, that's the process now. So it's really either education or victimization. Two yeah. options. Yeah, that's yeah. what it comes down to. Yeah. Speaking of victimizations. Here there's another Android vulnerability that was discovered. This time it uh, affects 55% of the users. <laughs> so, so significantly less than the 90-some that were last week. Yeah, yeah, just only half. half. <laughs> <laughs> well, no one uses mobile devices or Android yet, right, on this planet? We still have time, don't we? Yeah, yeah, we can fix this. <laughs> right. It's a new product. Yeah. yeah. We'll, we'll so, fix it in post. It'll be all right. Good. So every week... There seems to be a new Android vulnerability. We can't get past them. Mobile devices are a hotbed for malware, and vulnerabilities are so dangerous, and yet we need them every day in our lives. Researchers have now warned of a critical security hole in Google's Android mobile OS that impacts 55% of all Android users. Security researchers at IBM have discovered a new privilege escalation vulnerability, which if anybody knows anything about vulnerabilities, privilege escalation is one of the worst kind of vulnerabilities out there. It gives you complete control of whatever device or system you're escalating yourself on. It essentially gives you God mode. A malicious app with no privileges has the ability to become a super app and help the cyber criminal on the device. This vulnerability, as we said earlier in the show and hinted at, is CVE 2015-3825. It affects all Android versions 4.3 and above, including Android M, which is supposed to be super secure and, you know, the sexy new version of Android. This vulnerability resides in the OpenSSL certificate portion of the phone. The exploit will compromise the system server process and gain system-level access to the Android device. This exploit was demonstrated at DEF CON, and with the demonstration, they exploited the flaw. They replaced the real Facebook app with a malicious app and used it to steal the social network login credentials. There's a pretty scary vulnerability here because that means that anybody could do something like make a banking app and steal all the credentials for everybody who gets infected with this. 
Yeah. Once the user runs the app with no special privileges, it then downloads additional code to overwrite the existing app, load it with an exploit used to escalate permissions using the vulnerability. The shell code can replace any user app on the device with a malicious app. It then reboots the device so the changes happen immediately. The app will then have all the data of the original app and will be launched instead of the original app. This also completely bypasses SE Linux, and if anybody doesn't know what SE Linux is, it's the it's Security Enhanced Linux. It is a Linux kernel security module that provides security mechanisms and access control policies. And this vulnerability also allows for kernel code execution of Linux kernels, which can be compiled and loaded onto the device, which is also a, a huge security flaw, being able to load all your own custom kernels on the device. No, that's not scary. No, no, not at all. Um, IBM has notified the Google security team of a flaw. However, no patches have, have been released to the devices. Tip of the iceberg, really, right? Just like we said. I know we talked about this last week with the other Android vulnerability that was out there. The problem that we've seen is not that it's not getting fixed and not getting fixed quickly, because it is. Google is, is getting it, they're getting the information, and they're patching it extremely quick. The problem, and especially with, with coming from you know using an Android device, is that Android is portable on thousands of devices. So you have to wait for the manufacturers to actually update and push down those, you know, push down these security fixes. Some of the manufacturers, in fact, even stop supporting the devices after a set period of time. Yeah, if you've got a device from two years ago, chances are you're not getting updated at all. Yeah. People actually on the lower end of the phones that, you know, do have 4.3 and above that may be a year or two old may not get this patch at all. So there's a large population of individuals that are now vulnerable to this. Yeah. However, f from what I've read in the research paper, which we will provide a link to, it seems like this is what happened from an app that would be on a malicious third-party app store, not necessarily something you would find in the Android marketplace. So this comes down to users rooting their phones, you know, jailbreaking their phones, and then downloading these apps from this third-party app store. You know, users need to stop doing that. Right. Well, the vulnerability it's, is still there. Whether you know whether it's a third-party app or not. But well, yes, the the vulnerability is there, but it's more likely to be exploited from something on the third-party app store. Sorry. So basic mobile security precautions should be taken, and one of them: stop jailbreaking your phone. Stop it. Stop <laughs> installing apps from third-party stores that you can't verify are legitimate. For now, until that no longer protects you to the level that, at which you needed to be, or you need to be protected, right? Yeah. yeah, until Bank of America's now. app is replaced on the App Store by somebody who social engineers their way into doing it. It's only a matter of time. <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised if it's already happened. We just right. haven't seen it yet. Well, time and patience is the best tool for a hacker. Oh, absolutely. You have to slow play it. Well, you don't have to, but you're better off slow playing it. <laughs> so, yeah, you, we could never know. You know, there, there could be a malicious app that looks like a legitimate app, but just hasn't started attacking the users yet. Yeah. You know, it could just right. be sitting there waiting to accumulate its numbers on devices. 
And then all of a sudden, hey, guess what? This YouTube app that you've had and hundreds of millions of people have, oh, it just gave this attacker a backdoor to everybody's device. I mean, it's a good point. Matter of time. And on that note of that story that was quickly covered, this week we covered Android is vulnerable again, and it affects 55% of the users. Critical Internet of Things security flaw leaves connected home devices vulnerable. Educate yourself. Implement basic home security practices. It's the best thing you can do. And educate you know the people around you, your loved ones. Educate your friends. Because in the long run, you're just helping them and, and helping keep them secure. Hackers show off long-distance Wi-Fi radio proxy at DEF CON. When you're at a public place, watch what you're doing. Don't necessarily hop on the public Wi-Fi hotspots. They're dangerous. And Dropbox isn't as secure as you think it is. Two-factor authentication. Vet who you're storing all your data with online. And do not allow your device to be an authorized device. You know, Turn that off. Don't allow any devices to become authorized devices. Because it's a whole that attackers can use. They can mimic your device. I was your host this week, Raymond Evans, and he was my glorious co-host. Michael Fairweather. And he was my fantastic guest this week. Ryan Corey. Do you have any final words? You know, there are rumors that some somebody attached to this podcast may be uh, working with us to roll out something that's much needed in the world in the next several months, I would say, you know, in the next several months. Uh, maybe something along the lines of a web app pen testing course on Cybrary. So we uh, we look forward to that one. Right on. I look forward to it as well. Stay safe. Keep your network safe. And have a week. Have a week.